Good morning. My name is Taylor, and I want to thank you for joining us here at Life Church today, especially if it's your first time here. And I want to thank you, uh, those who are watching online as well. Uh, before we get into today's message, I want to highlight, uh, you just saw uh, The Thrill of Hope, which is the theme we've landed on for this Christmas series. Uh, and we want you to just kind of be on the lookout for more to come about that series uh, and to let you know that we will have our, our annual Eve Eve, Christmas Eve Eve service, December 23rd, obviously. Uh, there'll be two services though, 5.30 and 7.30. And we really want to encourage you to bring your family and your friends uh, to hear the gospel message at those services. So mark it on your calendars, December 23rd, a thrill of hope. All right, so why am I up here? Does it say it yet? Yeah, it says it. Where's Jeff? James, thank you. I'm here for James. We're going to finish up the book of James. It's two years in the making that's taken us to get through this book. And I'm excited to uh, finally talk about the uh, ending passages of Scripture here in James. Uh, but because it's been probably a little while since we've talked about it, I think it's probably good to go through the context of what James is and what he's saying and, and who, he, who he is and how important it is. So, James, half-brother of Jesus. Uh, remember, Jesus was born in a Nazarite family, and he actually had earthly siblings through uh, Mary and Joseph, his family. Uh, and James is actually one of the brothers of Jesus. Um, and so think about the relationship, James growing up with Jesus, like what that would look like from brothers growing up in a carpenter family. Uh, and then going forward, James, to know this, James didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the very one they were waiting for until the resurrection, at which point Jesus revealed himself then to James. So imagine your brother, your sibling, being God incarnate, and one day you go, uh-oh. <laughs> like, that would wake you up, I think, a little bit. But now James is charged as the first leader of the church in Jerusalem, which is really significant. And he's writing this letter, uh, his epistle, to the 12 tribes in dispersion, is what Scripture says. The 12 tribes in dispersion, meaning now the Jews have now disseminated outside of Jerusalem and other areas of the world. And this letter is to the Jewish person who's understanding who the Messiah is. And James refers to his own brother Jesus as the Christ, his Lord. Um, and so there's a lot of weight understanding uh, that, that relationship between James and who he's writing to. And as the leader of the church, he's telling us as Christians very practically, this is the way in which you are to live or to conduct yourself. And this is how your faith should become evident to other people. And remember looking back from chapter one all the way to, to what you'll hear today is there's a lot of tests within James. He talks about trials and temptations and sufferings and taming the tongue, a lot of very, uh, very simple things to say, but very hard to actually act and live out. And so if you put yourself in the context of the test that James presents, um, you'll see where you lie in your faith. And today specifically, we'll be in chapter 5, verses 13 through 20, and we're going to talk through a lot of different things it's going to sound like. Um, it's only eight verses, but almost every verse seems like it has a completely different thought. Uh, and some of the verses actually look like there's multiple thoughts within a verse. And so knowing that and reading through this, especially if it's your first time reading it, uh, we're going to go verse by verse and we're going to open up what James is saying. We're going to dissect it and exposit uh, this passage of scripture so we can understand what James is saying. And I want you to kind of put two thoughts in the back of your head as we begin and as you go through the message and as you leave today. Number one, where is your current prayer life at? And number two, what are you doing about the salvation of the lost? Okay, so those two thoughts, I want to frame this. And James is going to talk about many other things today, but I think it's important to note those two questions as we go forward. Uh, and we're going to begin now, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. We're going to read the whole thing just so you can understand uh, what he's saying here, and then we'll break it down. So, verse 13 starts this way. It says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again, 
and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So it's good to note here, we're going to start in verse 13, okay? This is what James says, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Now, what James says is always very direct. He says, if you're suffering, pray. If you're sick, sing praise, right? James lays out the idea that it has to do with our response to something, right? Whatever comes your way. If you go to the beginning in chapter one, he says, when you face trials of many kinds, right? He talks about trials, temptations, taming your tongue. Everything that he tells us is a reality and we have a choice and we have a response, right? Right? Okay, thank you. We do have a response. So what is our response to suffering? It should be prayer. And what is our response to uh, being cheerful? It's to sing praise. I think we actually have a problem with when that response happens. And this is personal to me and maybe it is to you as well, but I wanted to share this is that I think oftentimes when you're entering into a suffering or life is rough, you know, you've exhausted everything. You're like, I've tried everything and nothing is going my way. I can't understand this. Why is this happening to me? It's not until then that you get on your knees and pray. So suffering, it's not your first response, but it's a response, so it's not wrong, but is it your first response? Then he also says, if you're cheerful, let him sing praise. I think another thing that we've got accustomed to in our culture today is we wait to get in the car to sing worship music or wait for church on Sunday to cry out and worship to God when he's saying, if you're cheerful, praise, right? Very direct, very, very straightforward, but I want you to understand kind of the balance of what he's saying here. The prayer as a result of suffering or the praise as a result of cheer are nothing if you're not already in a right standing relationship with God in the first place. Meaning if you spent time with God and knew what he's told you to do, you would desire going to him first. Going to him first because he allows us access to him. So why is it that our response, our first response, is typically to try to figure it out before we go to God? And James, I mean, I might say this enough and I might annoy you with it, but he's going to hit home this idea like we're prideful. We're very selfish. We like to do things our own ways, and it's not always intentional. Yet in the middle of that suffering, I think, is often when that response of prayer comes in or, or after you've gone down the road of recognizing, God, I'm so thankful for everything right now. Once you've seen those things take place, then you thank him rather than thanking him for everything that he's given you in the first place, right? So just understand there's something to be said about our relationship with God and our response to these calls that he makes. So again, reiterating, if you're suffering, pray. If, you are, if you're cheerful, sing praise. So it has to do with the relationship. And now he's going to go into verse 14, though, and he's going to say something that seems very similar, but he's going to talk a lot more about this. So starting in verse 14 and in 15, we'll read this. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So there's a lot more that he's talking about with this is anyone sick. He goes on and lists a half a verse and then another verse about that answer. And the one thing I want us to be careful of before we go into this is that there's kind of two reactions when we talk about what prayer means as a believer. Right, so on one side, there's, there's those of us that have thought, well, if God is, is all-knowing and all-powerful, and he knows the beginning from the end, and he's the author and the finisher, he knows every action and reaction I'll ever have, then why should I pray? And what does my prayers matter? And then over here, there's the person who says, but Scripture says, if I ask, it will be given in his name, and, and it's a promise that he's given me. None of those are wrong. But I want us to be very careful about what those ideas lead to. See, over here, the idea of God knows everything, he knows the outcomes, it leads people to question why they're praying in the first place, right? And then there's over here where someone's who's saying, but God promised that he would give me everything if I just ask for it, but what about when he doesn't? 
So those become challenging thoughts, and I want to be very careful to know that though Scripture does reference those two ideas, that we need to understand we're called to pray, and there's a reason and a purpose behind the reason we are to pray, okay? So that's something I want us to always be thinking of, and the other thing is this. We're now going to break down this part of Scripture. So James here says, is anyone sick? Let him call the elders of the church. It doesn't say, let your aunt, your uncle, your cousin, your brother, your sister, your friend, your, you know, whoever, reach out to the church and say, I really need you to pray for so-and-so. Now, not that there's anything wrong with that. We do believe in the power of intercession. We do believe in the power of prayer. But what he says here in this passage of Scripture is let him call. Again, what is James probably alluding to here? Look at where we're at today. How many people, and I've never really experienced this much personally in my own faith uh, with other believers, how often are we saying, I need you to pray for me right now? We're way more enticed to say, I need you to pray for this person or this, you know? So our inclination, I think, is we have a sense of pride within us to go to the church and say, I am sick and I need your prayers. So there's something to say about the let him call the elders. But then it says, you're calling the elders. So the elders are essentially, as it's written in Scripture, you can read what elder means. But to summarize it, an elder is someone who's leading a church, who's in charge of upholding uh, its teachings and in charge of making sure it's growing and people are growing in Christ. But they're, they're called to that position in the church. And they're willing, they're ready, and they're able to pray. And it hinges on the idea that they are in an upright and upstanding position, right standing position with God in the first place. Okay? So there's this idea also behind that that says that, well, it says, let them pray over him. So you can do a word study on this passage of Scripture. Spend all the time you want, and it will take you a very long time to understand these eight verses we're talking about today. But when it says, is anyone sick? One thing it's also referencing is the idea that the sickness likely isn't a minor cold or a a sprained ankle. It says that the elders are to pray over him and that that person's calling them to them, meaning there's likely more of a severity to this sickness, likely more of a life-altering outcome of this sickness. Now, is it wrong to pray for someone if they're sick? No. Please do. What James is saying here, though, is if someone is sick, let them call for the elders to come to them and pray over them. Now, The other thing that I think we're going to rest on here for a little bit is the idea of the anointing part here in James. Because this is, if everyone reads this, I'm sure maybe you've had this thought. But everyone that I know who's read this passage of Scripture asks the question, so what does that mean for us today? And so we're going to talk about what anointing is and what that means for us today. So if you look back uh, in the Greek, the term that's used for anointing here likely means it's more of a medicinal use, right? Uh, in ancient culture, they used to actually take different oils and use them for therapeutic remedies. Um, and anybody have that aunt who sells essential oils? Nobody? One, two? Okay. Right? Nothing wrong with it. Like it's used for medicinal purposes, and they were using things like frankincense and myrrh. They were using things and using them as a therapeutic remedy for healing. And that's likely the translation that you would read of that word in the Greek. Now, let's talk about this. In the Old Testament, anointing meant something. In the Old Testament, anointing was to, to be anointed, like you would anoint a priest or a person, and, or maybe it was like an object for the tabernacle. It was anointed, and it was set apart and declared holy. Now, the other references to the oil of that anointing in Scripture is almost always used as a reference to the Holy Spirit. So if you read back in Scripture, like the widow's oil, the, the jars of oil and the widow, like whenever she's in debt, she's trying to collect oil to pay for her debt. That's a reference to the debt that was paid, the Holy Spirit. You can read in Scripture different instances of this oil, right? Now you know that. New Testament, it gives a bunch of different meanings to the word anointing. Jesus says, hey, if you're fasting and praying, you should anoint yourself. James says, if you're sick, the elders are to anoint. The disciples were anointing the sick. Jesus' feet were anointed. So what does that mean? Anointing, I want us to remember this. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the anointed one 
When you believe in him and you are saved, you are given the Holy Spirit, the gift of the anointed one. Therefore, you are anointed as a believer. Okay, make that very clear. Okay, so it's not like in today's world, there's a priest who's anointed and a building that's anointed like the Old Testament would would allude to. Now today, those who believe have been and are anointed. But when you get the anointing, if you will, it's not like you just get to access it whenever you want and there's this bank of anointing hidden and we're gonna collect more of it and that this church would be more anointed than this church or that uh, I can go get an anointing that's left over from someone else or I get more faith by more anointing of oil. It's not what he's talking about in scripture. You don't get that. The anointing was from Jesus giving us the Holy Spirit. I wanna make that very clear that we're understanding what anointing here means. And I'm gonna ask you this question. I want this just to kind of set with you. If you were sick, would you be waiting on the oil that James is talking about here to heal you? Or wouldn't you be going back to the beginning and looking at the relationship that you have with God in the first place to be praying and fasting and trusting that his will can be done in your life first? Because actually, what it says in Scripture is the prayer of faith will save him, not the oil. The oil is used in addition to the prayer of faith. That's a big thing. But you could never offer a prayer in faith if you weren't believing in God first, and then the oil would just be nothing, yet we wait on the oil. So don't wait on the oil. He says to do it. You want to know what Scripture says? If you're sick, call the elders of the church. Let them pray over you. Let them anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. But what about, what about when you're praying in faith and God doesn't answer that prayer? Because it looks like in James, there's a big promise here. You will be saved. You will be healed. What about when he doesn't? Our faith is not transactional with God. You don't get to build up a faith account and withdraw from it when you need a prayer answered. And he doesn't look at that collection of faith and say, oh, you got a little leftover balance. Here you go. Here's an extra blessing. That's not how God works. He's not an ATM. But understand this. I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you my story of what faith meant to me and praying in faith. So this September, I was doing marriage counseling here at the church um, with uh, some dear friends and I got an unexpected phone call that my grandma was having a heart attack. Like you ever know when you get that phone call, you're like, that person shouldn't be calling me, something's wrong. I'd actually been on the phone with my grandmother that day, I think what, four hours before the phone call. We were talking, we were gonna hang out the next day. We were gonna go to the farm and look at all this stuff at my uncle's farm. And she was excited to hang out with the grandkids. So this phone call had me like, what? And I felt bad because in marriage counseling, I was like, hey, guys, I think I got to go. And um, I'm not trying to laugh at the story, but you can too if it's funny. But So like, I'm like, I leave and I'm like, I don't know what to do right now. I drove to her house. I'm the only, one of the only relatives that still lives in Huntington. Everybody else is from Fort Wayne and we're all confused. We're like, what? And they're like, hey, tell me, Taylor, tell me when you get there what hospital we're going to. And I'm like, oh, all right, okay. I pull into her house and it's like a crime scene. There's EMS, there's fire, there's sheriffs, there's cops, you name it, coroner. And all the neighbors are around because she was like the hub of the neighborhood. And they're like, go out back, go out back. So I jumped the fence, if you can believe that. Uh, It was only about this high. I think I did break it. Uh, That's beside the point. So I I hopped the fence because I'm like, I see her and she's laying on the ground. She had life-saving measures in. They had an AED, nothing was working. And the second I got up there, I, I would, I'd saw people standing around her, but I kind of ignored that, if that makes sense, but I remember it. And as I got up to her, the coroner said, Taylor, we just called time of death. They were bringing out the white bag. And I was like, what? And I like kind of pushed him to the side and I feel bad because the way I did it. I threw my hat down, I pushed him to the side and I was like, yeah, well, I'm praying for her right now. I got down on my knees in the ground and I grabbed her head and she's, I mean, it's kind of a mess, but I grab her head and I'm praying over her. And I'm like, God, if you're gonna do a miracle, what better time than now? There are people standing around you and I don't know where their faith is. But how, how beautiful would it be if she could just stand up right now in Jesus' name and just show the world your glory, God? I stood up and there she laid. 
I prayed that God would get the glory and that she would raise up from the dead just because it was what I wanted to, but also because I really, 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 really wanted to glorify God. Nothing happened. Nothing happened in my prayer that I can see at that time. So what happens when God chooses to and what happens when God chooses not to when we're talking about our faith? Is our faith hindered on him doing something? Or is it trusting that when you pray in faith, regardless of the outcome, that he's the same God? Because it's really hard for us to understand. We've all probably had a story we can relate to. Like you've had a prayer of faith and you didn't see anything. It doesn't mean that God's not there and it doesn't mean he does not hear you. Okay? I want to make this very clear. So, the answer again in James. He says, you need to do these things. Pray in faith, you'll be saved. But then he says, and if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Well, that's kind of just, why did you throw that in there? What does that mean? And I want you to just think with me for a second. Sickness and sin have a direct tie. There is a direct connection from sickness and sin. If the fall, if, if, if Adam and Eve never sinned, I don't know what the world would look like because it didn't happen this way. I can't imagine that there would be sickness, disease, cancer in this world. But they did sin. Sin did enter the world. We live in a fallen and in a broken world where sickness is evident, where disease is evident, where cancers are evident. There's things that we can't explain. So there's things that are out of our control because of the fall we live in this world. But there's also sickness that is directly related to your sin. You can read in Scripture different instances of this. And if I just told you, and if you knew that your sickness was a direct connection to a specific sin, why wouldn't you confess it? Why wouldn't you just do exactly what James says here instead of trying to think about what I'm, what's right? Do I anoint? Do I do these things? Because if you've committed sins, you would be forgiven. Jesus, when he healed the paralytic man, you remember that story? He didn't say, go, I have healed you, go in peace. He says, no, your sins had been forgiven. Remember this. Forgiveness of sins is what would bring healing in the first place. Right? There's a magnitude to be said about this forgiveness of sins. And he goes on to say the big T word in verse 16. Therefore, we just told you something. Remember, highlight, circle, therefore, because this is what you're supposed to do about it. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. So he says, confess to who? Each other, one another, right? He doesn't say just to God here. He doesn't say to the stranger at the store. He says, confess to one another. I think this is a barrier. It is for me personally. But for us as believers today, again, back to the idea of pride, how many of us are willing to sit around a group of believers and say, this is what I'm doing. This is my sin. I think there's fear behind it. I think there's apprehension to do it for fear of judgment, for fear of condemnation. That's not what this is about. We say small groups and communities so much here at Life Church has nothing to do about getting more people here, has nothing to do about having more groups or more programs for you. What it matters is, is there's a group of people who are willing to believe in the same things as you and hold you accountable to where you're at in life and to pray with you that things can change and to hear you confess your sins together. And once you recognize that we're all sinners that are saved by grace through faith, then you can begin to talk about sin. If you want to see a healing, confess your sins. It's so straightforward in James. What does that look like? I'm going to give two examples. One is there's always that apprehension to tell someone what's going on. Tell another believer where you're at and you say, hey, listen, I'm just struggling lately. I need you to pray for me. What do you want me to pray for? Struggling with what? I don't need your details. I don't need every little detail of your life. I don't need you to pour your heart out unless that's what you want to do. But how can, are, what are you really confessing by saying that? 
with a group of believers gathered around, it's okay to go, listen, I'm having lustful thoughts and I can't get them out of my mind and I need you to pray for me that this stops because I'm trying to be a better man of God and I'm trying to be a better husband. It's okay with saying that because if you think about your story before you knew Christ and then knowing that you're still a sinner, only saved by grace, you'll understand that we all have something to share. We all have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of the Lord. And it's okay to share in community that confession. But we cannot downplay sin. Sin is terrible. It kills something. No matter what sin it is, no matter how great it is, it separates you from God. You cannot go into heaven with even the smallest single sin. Thank you, Jesus. That's how important sin is. It's not a whoops. It's not, I made a mistake. It's not, ah, dang it, I just keep screwing up. No. Sin's awful. And it should be treated accordingly. And we're called here to gather in community and to confess our sins to one another, not just a priest, not just in private. Now, there's nothing wrong with asking God and talking with God for any of these things. But he says here to do this with one another. Then he goes on in the end of verse 16. He says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So what is a righteous person? I just want to make this very clear. A righteous person is not that there's a, a pastor is more righteous than a lay person or a normal attender in church. There's no more righteous person than this righteous person. Our righteousness is found in Christ and Christ alone. If you believe in God and you have let your life act accordingly, that you have saving faith like James talks about, you are considered righteous. There's not these super saints walking around that have more of an ability to talk to God than someone else. The righteous one offers the prayer. This type of prayer, we've already read it, but he mentions with Elijah, this prayer is fervent. What does that mean? It means that this this prayer is bold. This prayer is forceful. It's passionate. It's powerful. It's not long. It's not rambling. It's not trying to change God's mind about what you want versus what he wants. There's no persuading God. It's bold, fervent prayer, and it's offered by a righteous person. The believer should already have God's heart and will in mind when he's going to him in prayer. So it should be a fervent prayer. He goes on then, and he gives us an example of what the fervency is. And actually, before we get into that, I want to highlight this. If you think about the fervent prayer you're offering, without being in the relationship with God first and being in a right-standing relationship with him first, your prayer is wasted. The fervency, the power, the magnitude, whatever you put behind it means nothing if you're not gonna be in a relationship with God first. Just like the oil means nothing if you're not gonna be having faith in God, the fervency is wasted here as well. If we're not considering our relationship first. Now he goes on, now we'll be in verse 17 and 18 here. He gives us an example. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again, Heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Here, James refers back to 1 Kings uh, 17, 18, I think maybe in 19, somewhere in there, about the story of Elijah. And I want to kind of frame this so we understand the importance of what he just said, if you haven't heard it already. Elijah went to King Ahab. King Ahab is the king over Israel at the time, and he actually led the Israelites not to worship the living God, but their gods, Baal, and other little gods. So this is a big topic of controversy in Scripture that, that people kept leaving God and going to these other gods who could never give them anything. And it says that because of Ahab, Israel sinned. And because of Israel's sins, Elijah goes to King Ahab and says, there will not be rain on earth for the next few years. On earth. Okay? Okay. So then there's this big showdown. It's on Mount Carmel. This is what happens. All these prophets of Baal that are in Israel come up to the mountain. There's 450 of them. And then there's Elijah. 
He says, we'll take two bulls. You take one, you cut it into pieces. I'll take one, I'll cut it into pieces. And we'll call on God. And whatever God answers or responds, that's the God that will follow. So all these 450 prophets of Baal do, they cut this bull into pieces and Elijah does it. And as they're crying out, they're going, Baal, answer us, come on. And I love this part because Elijah then mocks them. and says, yeah, louder, come on. Keep calling out to him. He's making fun of him because he knows nothing's going to happen. Boldly knows that nothing's going to happen. He knows the truth behind it. And then it, it's kind of crazy. They, they do some ritual. They start cutting themselves because Baal's not answering them. 450 prophets. Then there's Elijah. The altar was torn down, so he takes 12 stones and he builds himself a little altar and he, and he goes to sacrifice this bull and, and he actually says, hey, pour water on this too. How many of you have tried to start a wet fire before? It works every time, right? So imagine people standing there like, what are you doing? And nothing's working over here though. He cries out to God. God sends fire down, takes the bull, dries the water up, and they all drop down to their, on their knees and their faces and they cry out. They say, whoops. Like, put yourself and understand that power that was there. Now, I want you to think about this. Elijah then took the 450 prophets and slaughtered them. Okay? Now the sin in Israel is gone. So then what does Elijah say to King Ahab? Now you'll see rain. The sin was gone, and then the prayer was answered. You understand that magnitude? And then it says that it wasn't just sitting in the sky after they were, the sins were gone. It says that Elijah had to do something. Elijah got down on his knees. It says he was face down on the ground with his face between his knees, and he was crying out to God, saying, I need it to rain. He prayed, and every time he prayed, he sent his servant up to go look in the sky and say, tell me when it's going to rain. He prayed, his servant went up, he didn't see anything. And he came back down and he told Elijah, there's nothing there. Elijah prayed again. Servant went up, nothing. He prayed seven times earnestly and fervently, it says, for rain. And on the seventh time, when his servant went up, he looked out and he saw that little cloud in the sky and rain was coming. The sin was gone, the prayer would be answered. So this is why it's important to understand this and why James references this in Scripture. It says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He wasn't a super saint. He was an ordinary man called by God, a righteous man. Why would James say he had a nature like ours? Now this is what I want you to remember. The same God and the same power that Elijah had when he called down the rains from heaven is the same power that's available to you and to me today because it's the same God that we're serving. There's significance in understanding that it's not some crazy story, right? How many people here? Raise your hands. How many of you have started a drought or ended a drought? A couple people? Okay. What about a three and a half year drought though? I might have you there. That seems so far-fetched. That doesn't seem real. And James says, no, he's got the same nature as you and I. You have the same power available to you. If you pray fervently and going back to because you are righteous and in a right standing relationship with God, right? This is what James says. So then he goes on, and this is, I think this is crazy. James ends his entire epistle, his entire letter with two verses. There's no, like Paul would write a salutation like, oh, well, blessings to you, and I can't wait to return to see you again. James ends with these two verses in 19 and 20. He says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins done. That's kind of like, oh, okay. We're just going to leave it at that. But this so greatly summarizes everything James has ever said up to this point, if we really think about it. We all know someone who's wandered. I think we could all agree. Maybe you yourself were the person that has wandered. There's really kind of two trains of thought here, right? There's the person who knows the truth, has heard the truth, can tell you what the truth is, but they don't believe it. That doesn't mean that they're a believer of the truth. And then there's the person who believes in it, 
but has fallen back into their former ways. It's fallen back into a sinful nature. What James says in this entire book, and especially right here, is that if you consider yourself a believer and you profess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then it should be evident to other people by the way that you live that you'll be living on an example to go reach and care about the dying and the hell-bound souls. James's greater commission at the very end here is that you should care about the salvation of other people. You should care about the people who sit in church and call themselves Christians. And, and sadly, this is true. People will make false professions of faith. People will get baptized and say they believe in Jesus and they don't really do it. They think the baptism is going to save them or that simply saying it is going to save them. It's going to happen in the church. There's people sitting among us who have fallen into sin and it's up to us as the church to be in relationship with one another to invite them into community so we can confess, so that we can understand the truth, that we can hold one another accountable. That's the brilliance of how James ends his letter here and I'm going to invite the worship team up and I want us to think about this now. We've talked about James, James, James. You, you know, Jeff, I'm sorry, you're probably done with me talking about it. But I want to step back and look outside of what James is saying. James lived with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. James lived with him. And we've talked about how Christ, when he died, he gave us his Holy Spirit. But I think one thing we also need to remember that's still a part of this whole process is God the Father was still there through it all. And if we, can, if we can look through the lens of God the Father and the relationship of the Father and the child, I just wonder what it would change in us as we go to God in prayer, as we plead to God, as we confess our sins to one another, and as we do what James has called us to do. So if you have children, or you even if you haven't children, I'll just say this. If, you're, if you have children, what you want for them is everything. You want to give your kids everything. You want to pave the way for them. You want to make sure that they're well-equipped. But that doesn't always make sense. Giving them everything that they want doesn't always make sense. Giving them everything isn't always a good, fit, good thing for them, right? A father does want what's best for his kids. He does want them to achieve their goals and accomplish, accomplish their goals, achieve their dreams, right? See all these things play out. The father wants to give the kids the resources that they need to accomplish those things. But I think like any good parent, how many people, I think this is a societal problem today, how many people just expect to have them give, have your father or your parents or whoever give you something? We want it. We expect it. But wouldn't you rather have your kids ask you for the resources that they need to understand that they're in desperate need of something and you're willing to give it to them as long as they recognize that they need it and that there's a use for it? We need a Savior. God knows that. He gave us one. He knows the things that you need to see the miracle. He knows the faith that you have to have. He knows all these things. But he's asking his children to cry out to him, to, to pray to him, to worship him, to praise him. He says, why don't you do that to me? Think about maybe you've ever been in trouble as a kid. Uh, I know I'm not the only person sitting in here and I won't point fingers. Scott, thank you. Two hands up. We've all done something wrong against our parents' will. Our parents have said, don't do this, and then you do it. And then when they find you, hand in the cookie jar, you know that like response as a kid that your children might have? I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to. I promise it'll never happen again. And, and sometimes they really mean that. That plea that kids make sometimes is the most sincere they'll ever be with the truth. But sometimes as a father, you just want your children to recognize, I'm not gonna hold your hand the whole way here. I need you to recognize when you need something, you just have to ask. Cry out to me, ask me for it. I'm here to help you. But I need you to understand that I'm gonna give you what you need. And so when you pray, I want us to think about that. Are we praying with the heart and the will of God in mind? Knowing that he knows what you need. And I want to challenge you with this. Are you praying as if something will change?
Because if you have bold, fervent prayer and faith that can move mountains, and you believe that God can do everything, and you believe that something will change, you leave it in his hands and have the faith that he can and he will in his perfect timing. So will you please stand so I can pray for you? Heavenly Father, we have so many questions, so many fears, so many apprehensions, so many doubts, yet you've told us what to do. And we know the hope is that you will come again one day. So why do we fear? Why do we doubt? Help every person in this room and every one of our family members and our friends and anyone that we know, God, stir our hearts to be inclined towards you and trusting that you have the authority. And the reason we can come to you in prayer is because we trust in your authority, just like we trust in our parents' authority. I pray for the heart of the believer and the non-believer today in this room, God, that you would stir our hearts to understand the truth and if we've wandered away for it, we pray that you would bring us back to focus on you and understand that you have the power, it's available to us. We have to ask, we have to trust, and we have to have faith and let us never forget to not rely on other people but to rely on you first. God, we thank you and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. Faithfulness. Come on. I'm still in your hands. And this is my confidence. You never fail. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness.
think about this as you leave here today. Do you believe that prayer will change something? And then I also want to encourage you, be the elder, be the person in community, be the person to offer prayer, be the righteous person for God so we can see miracles take place here on earth. So thank you all online and in person for joining us today. Uh, we love you all. I pray you have traveling mercies as you go your separate ways. God bless you all. We'll see you next week.